Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 24 of Unknown Orbits, Business as Usual During Alterations by Ralph Williams. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. So this is a uh, fun little story about aliens offering a new technology to humankind that has interesting implications. I think it's a very interesting idea, well-developed. I had a little bit of a problem with the ending, but other than that, I thought it was a it was a nicely done development of an interesting idea. I found the ending acceptable, but I agree there's weakness to it. Right. So, business as usual during alterations starts out with several aliens looking down on planet Earth and discussing whether or not they should be destroyed or allowed to continue. And they talk about the defects of mankind and how they're destructive and selfish. And one of the aliens who's kind of pro-humankind says, yes, but they're wonderfully adaptive creatures. So the aliens decide to give a test to humankind by providing them with a piece of technology with a warning saying, this will give you all your, your desires, but it will probably also destroy your civilization. It's your choice. So the next morning... Humankind wakes up and finds duplicators sitting on city hall steps around the world. These duplicators are like two trays. You put the original item in one tray, you push a button, and then the exact duplicate appears in the other tray. So it's a simple duplicating device. Now, it does have the limitation that it will not duplicate any living matter, They have a particularly horrible demonstration where they put a hamster on one side and push the button and a hamster pops up on the other side and dies in agony. But as you can imagine, this very quickly creates a certain amount of chaos. And the story is told through the eyes of the manager of a department store. And it tells how first one of the customers offers to sell him one of these duplicators. And he immediately agrees And now he has a duplicator. The interesting thing about this story is rather than initially duplicating products from a store, he begins duplicating duplicators and selling the duplicators to customers. And, of course, there's a rush for all the customers to get their hands on one of these duplicators. And at that point, a lot of complications ensue. And every complication that comes up, the store manager manages to find a way to deal with it. Some of the complications include the customers start duplicating money. So he has to switch to a credit system to sell things out of the store. Then they start duplicating merchandise in the store. So he decides to sell it at a greatly discounted price, at at volume. In a way, like he's selling access to a a pattern. I mean, in, in modern terms, I just realize it's like 3D printing. Exactly. So then another customer comes in wanting duplicated bullets and guns, and they wind up tricking him by selling him the wrong caliber ammunition and 
old ammunition that doesn't work. And then some people are duplicating booze and getting all liquored up and so on and so forth. It's a tale of how this store manager exemplifies the adaptability of mankind that the alien in the beginning of the story talked about. How he manages to not only save the store from being wiped out by these duplicators, because theoretically, what do you need to go to a store for if you have a duplicator? He actually hits on the idea that the economy has shifted from an, an economy of scarcity and standardization where price is based on how available a certain item is and everything is the same. So when you go to the store and you buy a particular size shirt, it's going to be the same exact shirt that you know, somebody a week later comes in and buys. It's shifting from that kind of an economy to an economy of abundance where they allow you to come in and pay for the privilege of duplicating something very special. I think they were talking about lark's tongues or exotic delicatessen foods. Being able to buy a much wider variety of an item. That's where the story ends up at for the store is that they hit on this idea that, yes, you never have to buy a can of beans again because you just keep replicating cans of beans but after a while you get sick and tired of eating beans the sales story talking about early tv dinners that people get sick of the same thing yes the example he uses talking about the economy of scarcity is that yes you can duplicate tv dinners but after a while you get tired of the same five flavors of your tv dinner and you want something different so that's where the delicatessen specialties come in where they sell these unique items that are difficult to get and you can duplicate those to supplement your bland diet and that's the basis of a new economy and that's where the story ends is that he's discovered how to thrive in a completely new economy so my quibbling with this story is the ending you had this setup at the beginning where the aliens are threatening to destroy the world if they do the wrong thing And they do the wrong thing, and the world does not get destroyed. So it's like, okay, did you even need to have those aliens at the very beginning of the story setting this thing up? You could have just had the duplicators show up, and it would have made any difference. When you set it up that this is a life-and-death choice for the planet Earth, and then they make the wrong choice and nothing happens, that's to me, that's not good writing. I accepted the ending on its own. It's a good ending if they would have not had the setup that they had at the beginning of the story. Exactly. I accepted the ending as it was, not really caring much about the aliens, but you're right. If you set it up with the aliens, you should end it with the aliens. Someone walking in with a report on planet Earth. You could have had a final scene where the aliens are like, Initially, I thought that they were doing exactly what you know, we expected them to do. They're going to be greedy and destroy their planet. But the more I look at it, the more I realize you're right, Zeragog, that they are an adaptable little species, and I think we should allow them to continue. You know, So you could have that little epilogue yeah. with the aliens. That would have made the story a little bit better. Either you take the alien prologue out or you leave it in and then you put an epilogue that wraps it up. That would have made it a really good story in my mind. It's still a pretty good story, but a little flawed. How many 1950s movies have we seen where it begins with God talking to someone that we need to test this human? 
Well, yeah, that's an old trope. I mean, that's going all the way back to It's a Wonderful Life, you know, where it's like, oh, George Bailey, all these people are praying for George Bailey. What's going on? We better send an angel down there to investigate. Yeah, and then there's at least one Twilight Zone I can think of that had that same sort of premise where the aliens are looking down on Earth. How many times in The Simpsons Oh, did you see the aliens flying over Earth going, well, should we destroy Earth or not? I don't know. Let's look at this typical Earth man. And they look at Homer doing something typically Homer. So, yeah, that's an old trope, which would argue in favor of not having that prologue in the story. So this was published in Astounding Science Fiction in July 1958. So that was already a pretty well-established trope at that point. That's a little later than I thought. Yeah. So if this would have been published in the 1940s, then maybe you could have forgiven the author. I think that might have even been in time for the one in the Twilight Zone to have aired. Frederick Pohl had his own stories of an economy of abundance. I think the most famous short story would be The Midas Plague. That was a story where robots were manufacturing so many things so cheaply. The poorer you were, the more you had to consume. And the story involves the protagonist's journey to not have to consume as much. And he finds a unique solution by the end. Mm -hmm. Not a great story, in my opinion, but I think it's considered a classic. It's an interesting parallel, the economy of abundance versus the economy of scarcity, which is an interesting idea in and of itself. Do you have any other examples of similar types of stories? Well, Frederick Pohl did, I think before Midas Plague, he wrote The Space Merchants, which is its own little story. I promise to keep it short. Galaxy Magazine ran a novel writing contest, and they just had one problem. Absolutely nothing they received was worth printing at all. They went to Frederick Pohl and Kornbluth. Okay. And they wrote The Space Merchants, and it was published for the first time in Galaxy under the name Edson McCann first paperback was under that name, but releases since then have all been under the, the, their proper names. So what was what was that story about? Oh, sorry. It was big business, very corporate. It was sort of like a 1980s corporate movie, evil corporation in the far future, much like today in some regards. And a guy runs afoul of a co-worker in a competitive environment and he ends up being shipped to venus to live in a colony there and gets immediately addicted to the substance that the corporation wants everyone to be addicted on and he works his way back that's interesting so are you saying that the current dystopian business climate that we're living in is something predicted by science fiction writers in the 1950s yes and you know Everything they predicted is coming true just like 30 or 40 years later than they thought it would. Yeah, this is coming from a myself, a recent retiree who has finally stepped off the carousel of the rat race and is not looking back on my work days with any fondness. So good luck to those of you who are still in the rat race and, and with your nose to the grindstone, good luck. Uh, you're going to need it, I think, in the coming future. I... I'm a science fiction writer, and I'm making that prediction right now that things are not going to get substantially better anytime soon. So good luck. If you're going to use the carousel analogy, I will say I leaned out and reached for the golden ring. 
and missed it. And so now I'm hanging on to one of those bars with my feet dragging in the gravel. <laughs> so this is such a such an interesting premise and so well done that I thought maybe we could each take a stab at it. The idea of finding these duplicators, you know, what different hands would those duplicators fall into? Yes. Sure. An example would be, what if the military got their hands on it? You know, how would that play out? That's pretty predictable. I don't know how interesting a story that would be. Mine would be, it would fall into the hands of a Hollywood producer. So the Hollywood producer would initially use it for the typical things of like duplicating expensive cigars and duplicating expensive booze and throwing parties for all of his glittering Hollywood friends with all these fabulous items that he's duplicated using the duplicator. But just like in this story, it starts out small and then he starts to get bigger ideas of how to really capitalize on this. So he comes up with the idea of using it to duplicate sets and special effects and film stuff that will radically decrease the cost of film production. So he immediately rushes into production a cheap horror movie or cheap science fiction movie using the duplicator to create a lot of the special effects and everything that's needed, the sets and all of that, and is the first Hollywood producer to get that out into the market. And it's only moderately successful at the box office, but the cost of production was so low that it's overwhelmingly profitable. He becomes sort of like the Roger Corman of duplicator filmmaking initially. And then the other hot producers start to copy his methodology. So he has to adapt to that. I don't have an answer to that problem yet. Because that's what happened in this story. The department store manager, every time somebody came up with a new twist on the use of the duplicator, he had to react to it and come up with a way to have the store make money off of it. So that's kind of the same model that I would use for the Hollywood producer, that when other producers started to copy him, maybe you could even have overseas, like the Japanese film producers were making movies that were even cheaper than his. So you're just playing off of all these wrinkles that you put in. That would be a fun story to write, I think. I don't want to intrude on your idea, but I'm thinking of a bad ending. I don't have an ending for mine yet, so there could be a bad ending. No, it doesn't have to follow the success story of, of the original. He is at the pinnacle. He's a huge success, and he's in his robe, and he's got a drink, and looking out a bay window at the city, and he thinks, yeah, I got that woman coming over. I'm going to duplicate her and have a threesome, but it doesn't do living things. So now he has a dead body on his hands and arrange it somehow where she storms off and the police are pounding on the door and he's got a dead body, something like that. You know, I was also thinking about what if it fell into the hands of criminals? That's another twist I think that would be fun to write. And that just gave me the idea that you could duplicate somebody and create a dead body. And you could do that for insurance or you could do that to fake your own death. So like he duplicates himself, the Wanted criminal duplicates himself. I like this. And throws the police off the track by thinking he's dead. Goes out and has plastic surgery. I mean, there's a... There's, so so what's, your, what's your choice? Let's, let's hear 
the one that you would do. The more it simmers in the back of the head, the more it becomes a horror story. Children at a playground find these things. Oh, I love that premise. So you go through just kind of the initial G.I. Joe stage of duplicating du- toys. Duplicating toys, yeah. And things like that. But they very quickly discover that they can duplicate themselves and have a dead, identical body. And they start doing things with that, like throwing it into traffic, doing stunts with oh, it. Oh, that's wonderful. Like throwing it off a bridge. Yeah. yeah. That's great. <laughs> oh, man, that's awful. And kids would do it, too. Exactly. Or duplicating pets and <laughs> having dead pets. <laughs> God. I don't know how to end it. I think it would write itself. I mean, once you start going down that path, you know, like you have... One kid is the only kid in the group that sort of has moral concerns about what they're doing. He has doubts about it. So maybe he's the viewpoint character. But the other kids are like complete, total sociopaths doing all these terrible things. And he's kind of going along with it. But he's like, hey, guys, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And maybe somehow they turn like a classic child horror story is where at the end of the story, the evil kids turn on the one good kid. And in a sense, life has no meaning to them now because they have all these dead bodies around. Right. So they're willing to do something horrible. You know, like to a the little kid. girl dresses up one of the dead bodies and it's like a doll for her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it starts to get a little rotten. I mean, God, the horror possibilities are endless. There was a radio show a while back. It was probably. One of the radio science fiction series like Dimension X or X minus one, the majority of these were based on short stories. I just can't remember it. There was a game that the children were playing, and the story that the responsible adult is slowly getting out of their kids is the game has an alien that's in a bush, and the kids are getting devices to give to the alien, I think to construct something or... Maybe they were just planning the invasion and that Mm -hmm. the children would survive and be on top and all the parents would be killed. And it becomes more and more obvious that they're telling the truth. And the way the radio show ends is with the parents in the attic of the house retreating from the children, a lot of screaming, and then it fades out. That's awful. We just talked about this, I think, in our last episode about evil children. That is definitely on our to-do list, is to do some evil children's stories, because I love that. I love that idea of what should be childhood innocence is actually like poorly formed psychopathic tendencies of children. They haven't fully socialized. Yeah, they don't have that I mean, that's why Lord of the Flies is such a wonderful book, because it's basically about whatever social imprint was put upon them vanishes pretty quickly once they're put in the right situation. That's a great take on on this idea. I would love to see you write that someday. You know, I think you'd be better at that than I would be. Yeah, perhaps. I got a pretty long list of projects to work on right now. I did complain to you just yesterday that I have a hard time coming up with ideas for short stories. So here we go. Maybe I should write this one down. Do so. You can't get better than being terrified of children. Yes, yeah. I like the idea of putting this in the exact universe of this story and even taking that warning that the aliens put on the device and quoting that in the story. So the kids read it off at the beginning of the story. 
let's say I did sell this to a magazine, they would say, hey, this is a takeoff on a story business as usual, except during alterations, published in 1958. That would give it a nice hook, I, I think. So yeah, maybe I will. I'll put this on my list. You know, I did have one other thought that there might be a writing lesson in the story. Okay. We both agree that having the aliens looking down upon Th the earth. Yeah, threatening to destroy the earth. Yeah, didn't add much to the story. No. What's wrong with not having it at all? Just waking up and there's duplicators. Yeah, that's the way I would have done it. I mean, you have the little inscription written on each duplicator. That's the warning. And that's enough, I think. It's a mystery. Where did these come from? I don't know. Who cares? I mean, it's literally... And it doesn't even have to be science fiction. It could almost be a fantasy story that way. Even though it was published in Astounding, it almost reads like a fantasy and science fiction or galaxy fantasy story. Yeah. You know, very Twilight Zone, 1950s galaxy fantasy and science fiction style fantasy. Now, remember Groundhog Day? They never explain why it's happening, and no. and no one really cares. Yeah, exactly. And that's an important lesson, I think, if we're talking about writing lessons, is that if you have a great premise, I don't think you have to explain why or how. I think you just present it as a reality, briefly describe, and they do a really good job in this story of describing how it works. You know, the guy's watching a TV program where they're like, breaking news, and they're talking about these duplicators, and they bring a scientist on to describe how it works, and then they do the experiment with the hamster. A little bit cliche, but a really good way of... But efficient. You know, yeah. it was an efficient way to show, to explain to the reader right up front, here's, here's how it works. And that's all you need. You don't need to explain why or how or where it came from or anything like that. Ultimately, you're entertaining. Right, because the story's not about that. It's about the effect that this device has, in this particular case, on a department store. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Or? Well, I do now have the title of that radio show I mentioned. It was called Zero Hour, and it played on a radio series called Suspense. In fact, it was so popular, they played it twice in 1955 and 1958. It was based on a story of the same title, by Ray Bradbury from 1947. We'll put a link to the radio show in the comments. It's well worth a listen. Okay, that's it for episode 24. Tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.